Welcome to Glossonomia, conversations about the sounds of speech. This is show number four, and I'm Phil Thompson. I teach voice and speech at the University of California, Irvine. And here with me today is Eric Armstrong. Hi there. Uh, yes, I'm Eric Armstrong. Indeed, I teach voice and speech at York University in Toronto. So uh, here we are, and we're ready to go with another Glossonomia. Excellent. Uh, I thought that we'd follow our tradition of saying up front kind of what the show's about. After a few of these episodes, I think we probably won't have to do that at all, I hope. Uh, this is essentially a conversation between the two of us about individual sounds of speech. And uh, we'll talk about the sound, how it's made, uh, how it's spelled, if that's interesting, uh, and uh, perhaps some history about the spelling, uh, and then how we might hear it in different languages and different dialects of English. Does that sound about right? About right. Let's, let's get on the road. All right, so uh, we have a new feature actually today, uh, which is the benefit of actually having been listened to. Uh, we have uh, answering email. And so, Eric, you have the email in front of you. Do you want to let us know what it's about? I do. We have an email from Kate Nelson, and uh, she, uh, she started off by thanking us for our, our new podcast. We're very happy to have people listening, so thank you. Um, thank and you. Uh, the first for the, the, the question falls out from this part of her email. I have several groups of IT personnel in our Mexico office who meet with me via the web, and the I is hard for them. They hypercorrect and overproduce I once they feel confident with the standard American pronunciation. So just a little uh, jumping in here, hypercorrect, mm -hmm. that's to overdo it, to put I yeah. in places where it doesn't belong. Uh, and she I continues. have to say oh, sorry? that our, I have students who do that when they say pin and pen. As they undo that merger of sounds, they start to put eh everywhere they can get away with it. Desperate to be right. Yes. So uh, he, continuing on, she says, I'm happy to hear them produce a clear I, but the challenge lies in where to recognize when they have to use I or E, especially in words like sheet and beach. Those can be tricky, I agree. <laughs> uh, spelling is a challenge when they're trying to differentiate between the two pronunciations. Vocabulary building exercises are ideal when discussing spelling issues, but it can become overwhelming. Do you think you can add some information the next time you discuss a vowel on how to tackle this issue between spelling and pronunciation? Uh, it's a great question, and, and yeah. uh, it's a suggestion, clearly, that we, we add this level to it, the balance of spelling and pronunciation. Though, uh, with that group, the KIT lexical set, we do have the benefit of yes. KIT being really easy to spot most of the time because Indeed. it's almost always spelt with lowercase i. Um, the E sound is much less likely to be spelt with a lowercase i. It's not impossible, right? We get words like kiwi and ski. Um, but I think uh, that there's a clue in there, and, and we sort of hit on this when we talked about KIT, that... Those loan words that come to us in English that are spelled with I but have the fleece or E sound are, for the most part, as, as far as I can remember, a lot of them are free and not checked. Mm. Uh, if you see an I and it's checked, that is to say there's a consonant after it, the chances are really pretty good that it's an I or a kit vowel. Yes. So um that that's our, our suggestion is to look for the i for the kit vowel and perhaps assume that the others are going to be e particularly if they're spelt with the letter e or multiple letters like ee -E or ea yeah and then you're going to end up with a few outliers uh but a smaller number of things to actually remember than if you followed a different rule mm -hmm. terrific i think we answered that one and uh now we can move on to what we're dealing with today in this episode uh, and that is uh, a double sound, a double consonant sound, t and d. Uh, this is... It's the ta-da episode. <laughs> exactly. And uh, one thing I want to say up front about t and d, and the reason that we're putting them together, just like we put p and b together, is there's a lot that's the same about their formation. Mm. And it would be perverse to separate them into two separate ep episodes, I think. So let's talk a little bit about the formation of t and d. Do you want to take us down that road? 
Sure. Um, now, of course, t and d, they are consonants, right? That means yes. that there's a blockage, a stop, and uh, we have uh, a name for this sound. It's called a, a, either an unvoiced or a voiced, depending which one. T is unvoiced, d is voiced, and they're both alveolar plosives. So alveolar means that the apex or front edge of the tongue is meeting with the gum ridge behind the upper front teeth. So that's where it's taking place. And the manner, it's called a plosive, sometimes called a stop plosive, sometimes called a stop. Um, depending on context, depending on who's using that term, we get those three combo names thrown around. So um, what's happening is the front edge of the tongue is coming up behind the upper front teeth. It's blocking off the air passage. At the same time, your soft palate has to be raised so that air can't come out your nose, otherwise you would get an N sound. So with your soft palate up, your front of tongue up, you block off the airway. And your breath system, whether it be your diaphragm or your intercostal muscles from your rib cage, uh, that's going to create a little bit of pressure behind that block uh, in the flow of sound and speech. And then uh, we release the front edge of the tongue and the air is released. If we're doing a duh sound, we immediately are going on to the vibration stream, uh, whereas when we're doing a tuh sound, uh, there'll be a period, at least before we go on to a vowel, uh, of voicelessness. Now, in English, we do have one other thing, and that's called aspiration, and that affects the tuh. And as we release, there is a little bit of... Uh, friction that's created and the air pressure that's coming out makes a little bit of a noise, a little turbulence that uh, makes it perhaps a little bit more audible. Um, ultimately, the t sound takes a little bit more breath energy to make than the duh sound. The duh has the benefit of the voicing to help it carry, whereas the t takes a little bit more air pressure to match. And so uh, one, the T the is called a fortis, a strong sound, mm -hmm. uh, whereas the D is called a lenus sound, and that's because it's a little bit softer uh, and it's supported by that vibration. Excellent. And maybe we can talk a, a little bit later about lenish and about that lightening mm -hmm. that happens. Uh, let me pick up and s just reiterate what you've said here, because I think we might have said it last time, but I think it's one of the special things about stop plosives is that they have these three components, the stopping of flow, the explosion of that built-up pressure, and potentially that little bit of aspiration, the little flow of air after. And the reason it's significant is that each one of those can carry the meaning of that phoneme in speech. Mm. Stopping but or the but that explosion, or the little puff of air after, but each one of those is a component of meeting that might do the job of letting us hear that consonant having happened. And uh, we'll talk later about what we might ask our students to do on mm -hmm. stage, but for now we have three parts that we could deal with. I, I want to just also mention there's a really interesting distinction between the voiced and unvoiced, which is, as you said, the immediate beginning of voicing. And I'd say that it's true in some people, or perhaps true in all people at some times, that that voicing can begin during the moment between stopping and exploding. While the chamber is filling with pressure, voicing mm -hmm. could be happening. So I could say, duh. And that's certainly a possibility in terms of timing. And, and these sounds are really a lot about timing, maybe more mm -hmm. than other sounds. Yes. And as we work on accents of English, we have different variations, and particularly people for whom English isn't their first language uh, yes. are likely to have less aspiration, perhaps on T, and more of that pre-voicing on the D sound, duh. Um, so that's a, sort of an has aspect to do with we need to know. Yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll come back to that. Uh, shall we move on now to spelling? Sure. Uh, it's pretty simple. Uh, and <laughs> in fact, we could talk a little bit here about the history of the spelling, uh, which is, uh, in the case of these two sounds, interestingly stable. Uh, if you look back 
towards the initial, let's say, we'll talk about the t sound, the initial letter uh, that represented t, uh, it was sort of a cross. Uh, it had a very much cross shape, and it's been very stable. It's represented pretty much the same sound through the history of uh, at least that sort of Phoenician to Greek to Roman to pan-European spelling that we mm. use in English. D, too, has had very much a sort of a, as you mentioned earlier, uh, before we started the recording, a door shape, uh, which I think is pretty cool, considering our word for door has a D sound. Uh, it then moved into a triangular shape or a delta shape. Um, we call the mouth of a river a delta because it's got that shape. Uh, and then finally, it sort of turned sideways and made the shape that we recognize as an uppercase D. Those sounds and those symbols or versions of those symbols have been pretty much the same for a long, long time, kind of since we've had phonetic alphabets, uh, although there are certainly other phonetic alphabets that exist. So it makes it pretty easy when we're thinking about the spelling of these. Uh, obviously, in the Roman alphabet, we have upper and lower case t and d, but they're, they're recognizably similar. Uh, and they stand on their own in an almost phonetic way in English, let's say in English spelling, and we are pretty clear about knowing what that sound, that symbol represents. Uh, mm. You had brought up a couple of variations in spelling Sure, Thames and Thomas and Time, spelt T-H but pronounced with a T sound. Um, and uh, I suspect that, uh, you know, all of these variations are likely to have been loan words at some point mm -hmm. with a pronunciation that is outside of the range of English uh, pronunciation. And so they ultimately switch to a T sound. Um, and the other fun one is, of course, ptarmigan and pterygoid and pterodactyl, um, which in the root language would have had a P pronunciation, but uh, the PT as an initial sound doesn't exist in English, so we drop that. Yeah. Uh, we could say that the P got assimilated into the T there. Mm. Uh, yeah, I think that that is all the spellings that we would run into. And certainly the words that have PT are limited. We could probably list them, and they're mostly Greek, I guess. Mm. Uh, the TH, I just wanted to say, uh, certainly there are languages that use the TH spelling to represent T, and words like théâtre and so forth in French. Mm. Uh, the TH is directly representing uh, the, the t sound. Uh, Thames, I actually don't know what the etymology of Thames is. That's something for me to look up afterwards. Uh, that pretty much takes care of the history of the spelling. And uh, as we've mentioned, the history of the pronunciation of it is also pretty stable. The variations that we're going to talk about in a bit probably have existed over time in, in various languages. Uh, but essentially, a T is a T, and it sounds like T, and a D is a D, and it sounds like D, uh, which is uh, makes it useful and simple to deal with. Now, of course, in phonetic notation, if you're being uh, narrow about it and you want to make a point of indicating that aspiration of the T, then we write T with a little superscript H. And something I learned fairly recently was that in the extensions to the IPA, there is a diacritic for not aspirated, and that's a little equal sign. Yeah. Um, and that equal sign is a great way for those of us who assume that there's going to be aspiration on all Ts to use the unaspirated symbol on sounds that, are, that come up that are unaspirated. That can be a, a helpful tool. Indeed. And uh, th there's a question there about... Uh, the way the IPA is used that I just thought I'd poke my head in and mention, mm. that we can write very, very narrowly, but there's always a little bit of an assumption, and that's a phonemic assumption, that if you don't say otherwise, the letter is the way you assume in the language that you're reading. And so the, the IPA can be very, very flexible to be very broad or very narrow. And... Uh, 
you have to make a decision if you're transcribing uh, t, for example. Are you going to note every time it's aspirated and every time it's not aspirated with the appropriate symbols? Or are you just going to assume that it's taken care of? And that really happens, or, or rather I think it should happen, on a flexible basis based on what you're teaching your students. Mm. So if it's important that your students make differentiations between aspirated and unaspirated sounds, then definitely put as much detail as you can in there and get people thinking about the, that. Uh, I think that you and I might have talked about this on our uh, previous episode, that uh, J.C. Wells, uh, on his phonetics blog, will often write in a very broad way uh, because the issue at hand is not that distinction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so there is no perfect phonetics in the sky, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Uh, yes, indeed, that uh, that people uh, often want a single right way, yeah. and many way, right ways often frustrates them. I think that's why they're religious wars and things like that. <laughs> many uh, so ways to heaven in the phonetic uh, I, I realm. I agree. Uh, let's go on to talk about uh, variations uh, in pronunciation, and this is probably the longest bit, so we better get started on it, because there are mm-hmm. quite a, a number of variations. Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned earlier that variations in aspiration uh, are pretty common. Mm-hmm. Both between languages, uh, there are languages that aspirate more and languages that aspirate less. In, in English, though, there's a pretty clear set of rules that we can apply for when t is going to be aspirated in, in an English word. There's, there's got to be a vowel for it to move into. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it is more likely to be aspirated in a pre-vocalic position. And that pronunciation has to be in a stressed syllable. So oh, i got to interrupt. i got to interrupt. Yeah. What, what, for those of us who are, who yes. are ignorant, pre-vocalic, what does that mean again? Yeah, it essentially means before a vowel, but it's mm. such a cute word that I feel <laughs> I have to deploy it periodically. <laughs> uh, and pre-vocalic uh, is going to be a useful word when talking about a lot of the sounds, and so we might as well bring up post-vocalic as its twin. And uh, uh, and, and, the, and its tripl- triplet is... Uh, course, intervocalic. Exactly. So uh, we, we're we going to come back to those words, I think, a lot. And a lot. I promise we're not just saying it because it makes us sound cool, although it clearly does. Clearly, <laughs> clearly. Uh, so aspiration, if we were to make a rule about it, uh, really it's an observational rule that most of the time in English, when t is followed by a vowel in a stressed syllable, you get a little bit of a puff of air. So, mm-hmm. Tony takes tea time. Uh, probably, we're going to have a little puff of air, a little aspiration there, which, as you said before, could be notated with a little symbol. So, you're saying that basically it's it's on initial stressed syllables yeah. that we're getting that puff of air. And, and that's Now, one thing you sort of said was that it doesn't happen finally. Is that is that what you were saying? Uh, no, I just... Uh, I was saying that it's a, a, a better guess that it's going to be mm. happening before a vowel in a stressed syllable. But right. all of these things we could do variably. I could mm. say, Tony takes D time and not aspirate or not aspirate very much. Uh, it would feel a little weird, perhaps, mm-hmm. because of the underlying English rules. Likewise, I could say, but not that. And it's not just that I'm being emphatic for stage purposes. There are certainly times when the emotional communication or the intellectual communication requires aspiration of a final plosive. Mm -hmm. Now, we are talking at this point about the unvoiced T, uh, but I think there's a little bit more to mine in terms of aspiration there. This aspiration is happening before a vowel in a stressed syllable and probably less likely to happen before a vowel in an unstressed syllable, like better letter, and less likely perhaps to happen 
post-vocalically after a vowel, even if it's in a stressed syllable. So, but, not, that. So in th- those instances that you just said, those were unreleased, no exactly. audible release. Exactly. Um, and so we, we just had that silence, the sudden abrupt stop of sound on the vowel that we read as a, as a T-like sound. So um, why don't I just... Can you do it with a release, <laughs> with an audible release, but no aspiration? Yeah, absolutely. But not that. Uh, I think I probably did another variation there, uh, which was uh, non-pulmonic, but let me save discussion of that for a little <laughs> bit. Uh, so there's a really cool thing that happens uh, when that impulse to aspiration is there, but you don't move directly into a vowel. Uh, when you move mm-hmm. into uh, a r, a l, a w, or a y. Uh, so let's take an example of the word rip. Uh, if I said tip, I would be likely to have a little burst of air. If mm-hmm. I were to say rip, obviously there's no aspiration, no burst of air, because it's a different kind of consonant. But if I were to say trip, it's likely, at least in my speech, for that r to house the aspiration uh, to become de-voiced. Now, we haven't mm-hmm. talked about that consonant yet. That'll probably take two episodes to talk about that consonant. But for the time being, let's just say that that's a voiced consonant, rip. But when I say trip, it is more likely than not that I'll de-voice that sound. In a way, putting aspiration into the consonant. And that's true of l, so lip, there are no words in English that are clip, but you could imagine them. But you uh, could put it at the end of a word like little. Yes, exactly. Uh, the w sound, uh, wit, twit, uh, y sound, uh, I can't think of a t, uh, or how about this? Y- Tune? <laughs> exactly. We had the same thought at the same time. So <laughs> if there were a word yun, uh, and then you put a t on the front, you'd get tune. So the, like you and, you and me both. Exactly. You and me both tune the piano. Now, this is all variable, uh, but certainly there's an impulse for that aspiration to exist in those consonants. Here comes the next part, which is uh, a way to take that spell off. If t is preceded by s, an s sound, for some reason that uses up the steam and you don't mm-hmm. get an aspiration. So team might have aspiration. Steam might not. Uh, let me just say them normally. Team, steam. I thought I might have kept a little bit of aspiration in that. T- uh, but you know what? If, if one takes a word like steam and records it yeah. and then goes in and cuts off the S, we get deem. That's what you hear. Um, and that basically our, our initial voiced plosives, whether it be ta-da or pa-ba or ka-ga, mm-hmm. the initial uh, T, P, or K, when followed by a, preceded by an S, I'm sorry, um, is exactly the, in our perception the same as our B, D, or G. Um, and we talked about this a little bit yeah. when we did our, our ba Bug, uh, pubba our pubba episode, our peanut butter show. Uh, you know, yes. there's uh, one last variation in this little complicated thing, which is uh, ream, or rather rim, trim, and stream. The de-voi- the deaspirating quality of the s will undo the devoicing of the following voiced consonant. Uh, so, strap. Uh, we, we, if we took the S off, we'd hear drap. We would hear voicing all the way through that second part. Drap, strap. Now, I have to say that, that uh, I have heard people say that they were trained to say uh, stop with an <laughs> aspirated T to be emphatic. To me, that sounds just a little bit too precious. Um, and uh, I have heard uh, second language learners do that, say stop. Um, in you know that they're aspirating where they're in the wrong place. Essentially, I have had people argue that they say "street" with a fair bit of what, what 
they might call a slushiness on their R, that the aspiration is still happening, street. Uh, uh, and that uh, is a, uh, perhaps also affected if they've got a really pulled back R and you get that yeah. street kind of sound, um, that, that we might get a little bit more of that devoicing of the R. So I, I think that's perhaps a little bit more variable than, say, just the S on its own. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And and there's certainly some interesting street strength stuff we can probably insert into a later a later podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next thing I have on my list to talk about is uh, past participles. Uh, uh, batted and wished are the examples that you emailed to me. Do you want to mm-hmm. talk a little bit about that? Well, I mean, uh, past participles are generally, right, if we have a word like... Uh, 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 hoped, no, hoped is a bad example. Yeah, hoped is a good example. When uh, we have a past participle, hoped, it's written P-E-D, uh, because the E-D ending is following a voiceless consonant, it's pronounced with a T sound. Uh, if we uh, used a word like dreamed, the E-D ending is pronounced with a voiced sound because it's following a voiced consonant, the M in this case. Um, when we put that ed ending after a t it has to be uh we have to pronounce the ed it's not bad it's batted right so we get that little i and that allows us to make it a d batted instead of batted <laughs> um and similarly wished uh is it has that uh the sh voiceless sound so it goes to a t now there are a few interesting ones like burned uh or burnt Mm-hmm. In some instances, some people will use um, I uh, burnt as an adjective, uh, whereas they would say I burned the the casserole because it, it's a verb in that case. Uh, another variation that is really by, by dialect is spelled or spelt. Right. So it's another instance in a way of talking about the way voicing conditions of the surrounding sounds affect the voicing or devoicing of this particular sound. But I think it's also a really wonderful instance of how our pronunciations th- of things have to do with what works, what's convenient to say. Uh, we, we aren't compelled to say wished, although I did have a student once who told me that he had been trained very carefully to always pronounce the sound d or t as it was spelled. So Hmm. if he was saying wished, he would go to an extraordinary effort to make a voiced sound there, even though nobody that I know of actually says it that way. Uh, It was a sort of slavish adherence to spelling as a guide to pronunciation, uh, which used to be, I'm talking about the the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century, a uh, really popular uh, practice known as orthoepy, uh, mm. setting rules by which the spelling made it necessary to, to pronounce a word in a certain way. And there is a t that falls into this category, which is often. Uh, it's a t sound mm. that is, it's, it's disappeared from English, except it keeps on coming back again. Uh, although I don't know anybody who says soften. <laughs> yes, I see what you're getting at. Uh, shall we move on to uh, the use of tapped R uh, in the place of T? Uh, mm-hmm. um, often we'll have uh, people from North America who say uh, things like, well, in the middle of a word, like better, that uh, I say a D, I say better, um, and that in some ways we could say that yes you're right and in other ways we could say well that might be one way of thinking of that but we might think about it in another another way um, and that that that's certainly a voiced sound um, it's not a voiceless T like in better uh, where I'm, I'm clearly making a, a voiceless stop there um, if I'm saying better quickly enough the action of my tongue is not a full stop. It's very, very abrupt action of my tongue. So uh, what the International Phonetic Association calls a tap, 
and so my tongue very briefly makes contact with my gum ridge and comes back down and voicing is able to be maintained throughout yeah. um, and some people could argue in a word like better that if in some co- context you can do it so that it's um, uh, unvoiced um, but when I say it it's certainly voiced better um, so the the IPA symbol for that is a symbol that looks a little bit like an R. It's called the fish hook. If you imagine with your handwriting drawing an R without the vertical stroke that you usually write first, it's just the hook. That gives you the the shape of the symbol used for this sound. I have seen people use a T with a diacritic mark of a voicing mm-hmm. diacritic, a little V underneath, as another way of representing well, that. Or we could, again, phonetics is meant to be descriptive, and so people can pronounce things in a wide variety of ways. We could use the symbol that you mentioned earlier, which is no audible release, uh, mm. but that would be a very specific articulation. Uh, there was one other thing that I wanted to point out about this better letter, but it's completely slipping my mind. Uh, which well, uh, I have another thought, and that is that um, the the pronunciation of uh, um, you know often people will use th- things like uh, um, the latter compared to ladder. Mm. Um, in for most North Americans, ladder and ladder are indistinguishable from one another. Um, so that fishhook symbol could be used both to represent T or D at at quick speed going into uh, an, in an intervocalic se- setting um, where it's beginning a, uh, an unstressed syllable. And really, the distinction between a tap and a plosive is a very fine line, it seems to me. It's about stopping flow and building up pressure. And mm-hmm. so a fast plosive and a tap, six of one half a dozen of the other, perhaps... I think that uh, you know that people who do an analysis of of the airstream, they can actually measure the how that uh, built up of build up of pressure is different, and so that's one of the things that they use to say is that a tap? Is it is it a stop? I, I find myself uh, wanting to recommend uh, a book, but I'm only remembering the author and not the book. The the author is Linda Shockey, who I think teaches at Ohio State. She has a wonderful book transcribing in sort of excruciating detail how conversational speech really is executed. And to go back Mm. to the point I was making before, we have a very phonemic sense of what's a T and what's a D, but the realization can be really widely varied. Uh, One that I think that we haven't talked about yet, one of the realizations we haven't talked about, is the substitution of a glottal plosive or a glottal stop for... Uh, either a d, perhaps, but certainly for a t. And this goes back to this question of lenition. So I want to mm. take a, a step back there. I suppose if it's if it's lenis, it should be lenition. Uh, but I'm I'm cautious of this word because I was mis. Oh no no it isn't because the stress moves from ah. lenis to lenition, ah, so right. it's unstressed and so, so the, the vowel changes. It's a weak vowel, um, but. Uh, uh, just can you give us an example of a word with a glottal instead uh, yeah. of Yeah, uh, we could take a word that I think I mentioned before, which is but. Uh, the aspirated form is but. The unaspirated form is but. The unreleased form is but. But the glottal version is but. Uh, I'm overdoing that to make the sound clear, but if you were looking at my face, oh, podcast listeners, you would see that the tip of my tongue just doesn't raise up. So the place I'm stopping the flow of air is at my glottis or at my vocal folds. I think we might be able to hear it a little bit better if we put it in an intervocalic Terrific. setting. Oh, big word. Um, so uh, better becomes better. Exactly. And in fact, uh, students, my North American students will be right on board with saying, oh, yeah, Cockneys do that or Scotsmen do that. Better, little bit of metal. But then when I tell them that they use the sound themselves, either in final positions I did not, or no, you didn't, uh, or in initial <laughs> positions, eh, my God. Uh, the, it's really very common in certainly, as I can say, in California speech, but I think throughout the country. 
Yes, it's becoming certainly more common. I, I can say up in Canada, I'm encountering more and more, but it, it's certainly not as, as heavy as it is in California. Of course, Britney Spears made it famous with Hit Me Baby One More <laughs> yes. Time, uh, that, uh, that, that glottal stop before the M, Hit Me. Um, I think often that's probably the first place we're going to encounter that for people who are moving into that pr- uh, pronunciation that might not have had it before is when we have a final T before a nasal. Um, so, uh, hit Mary, uh, it's, uh, you're, you're not going to release that. There's no audible release of that T. And so uh, that is very easy to switch over to a glottal You remind me, stop. too, that there's a, another thing that can happen, which is an unreleased P in place of a T. Uh, so I might very commonly say, hit me, that is to say, an unexploded, unreleased p, uh, because I'm making the shape for the m that's about to come. Mm, the cool word for that is an assimilation, because <laughs> we're assimilating the place of the m onto the first sound, the sound that precedes. Uh, the, and the fact is that we do that, and, and the, the force of changing language has made lots of our words that we think of as stable and wonderful, like impossible, has become impossible because the closure of the p has made it much more convenient to make an m than an n. I I think I might have gone through the whole list here. Have we finished talking about the way we use glottals? I want to add one other thing in that part of the reason why that glottal happens is because of something called glottal reinforcement, that when we have a final unreleased t or any stop, consonant that's unreleased, we tend to reinforce that stopping action that we do with the, the tongue uh, with a stop or a closure in the glottis, in the vocal folds. So if you were to say, hit Ted, and you were anticipating that Ted, you probably would just stop the airstream with your tongue, and there would be air pressure behind your tongue until you release the second T of Ted, hit Ted, and you'd feel air pressure. So if listeners want to try it silently on the subway Mm. as you're listening, uh, you can do that. Hit Ted, and you should probably feel a gentle pressure of the airstream against your tongue while you're waiting for the release of Ted. Um, But if you were going to say, uh, I got a hit, uh, that final utterance of hit, you're not anticipating going on. And so it's very likely that you will stop the T of hit. Uh, and stop it in your throat as well. So when we're doing a switch and in a final place like that to a glottis, as your students are doing, um, there, there's already a glottal action going on. It's a co-articulation. So in a way, we're just dropping the tongue action and keeping the glottal yeah. action that's already there. So that's, that's one part of, of that equation. Um, of course, the other thing I have to say when I he- talk about glottals is to remember uh, the, the genius of uh, uh, waiting for Guffman and eh oh ow, ar, <laughs> exactly. um, uh, Talk about uh, hyper-correction uh, or hyper-correction. Uh, <laughs> yeah, actually, I had a student uh, working on uh, RP, received pronunciation. Uh, let's not put a footnote in about that. We'll come back to that, I'm sure. Uh, and she was doing a very good job, except when she hit a final T, she'd say, oh, no, I didn't hit. And she would start to close at the glottis, which would start to bring her slowly into Cockney. And so uh, the point in the script where she had a few of those sounds, she started to do other things because she would be imaginatively pulled into that world because her own California Mm -hmm. accent underlying Mm it led her to the strategy that you described, which is a glottal closure at the end. I... uh, uh a similar similar sort of anecdote from my teaching is that uh, uh, a lot of my students of Jamaican background use a lot of glottals in final settings, and uh, that um, it's to them it was a very subtle aspect of their speech that nobody ever really pointed out to them before, and so it, whereas they had worked very hard on addressing elements of their speech that were. Uh, Jamaican and sort of audibly uh, different from mainstream English, this was one area where really they had very little awareness of this one allophone of T. And uh, ultimately, 
that, that they would get to the point where they're working on an accent and they'd be doing a brilliant job, except I kept hearing these final glottal stops. And very, very frustrating for them to, to have this constant reminder, oh, that Jamaican sound is coming in again, um, because they'd worked so hard to it address it. It is fascinating. It. Uh, as people make slow adjustments in their accent, and this is certainly true in people, uh, foreign speakers speaking English and so speaking it with a foreign accent, the level or the timing with which certain elements are fixed, the most egregious or the most noticeable elements get fixed, and the subtle elements or the elements that aren't as noticeable will linger for a long time until mm. they get into a voice class and start obsessing about it. Uh, there <laughs> are a couple of more things on my list. Uh, it's a big list, I, I realize, of variations in in the execution or realization of t and t. And one of those is ejectives. Uh, I think we can save talk about what a non-pulmonic sound is in full for for some time later. But essentially, non-pulmonic means not from the lungs. So it's squeezing air out of your mouth by changing the shape of your vocal tract. And in this case, our, our students actually are pretty good at this because of beatboxing. They can do t mm -hmm. t t uh, or t t t. And so people actually will encourage this in singing sometimes. It's a way of producing a strong final t or d by squeezing a little bit of air out without the lungs engaging. So, but uh, I could theoretically could I do it with a d? No, because I'd be using, I'd be closing off the vocal folds and they wouldn't be able to get the voicing in right away. So mm -hmm. I'm trying to think of a song that has uh, a final T, but that's going to be a fruitless enterprise. Uh, but if I were singing, but I could put a little bit of a t on there and it would be certainly clear. Uh, it's the sort of thing that I... I wouldn't encourage in spoken language for the stage. Uh, but it's a great thing for on-mic technique. Yes. That people who are doing voiceover, they often use an adjective for final consonants that, uh, that they don't want to overdo them, but they do want to put a, you know, a final T on a word. And it really helps to sort of check off that final consonant. And it helps as a way of... of uh, particularly for something like a product name where it's very important that the listener knows how to spell that product, that they hear that final T. And so uh, the, the, uh, the client really likes to hear that little t sound on the end of and the articulation. You remind me that it's possible to do any of these articulations subtly. <laughs> and so mm -hmm. just because we're pointing it out doesn't mean that it always has to done, be done with the full energy possible. So if, yeah. if the f product I'm selling is smoot, uh, I might say smoot. And the tiniest little explosion there would, as you say, give the idea of the phoneme. Mm -hmm. I, I want to also pick up on uh, uh, an idea that uh, I think we talked very briefly about on our uh, Pabba show, and that was the idea of geminate yes. or twinned consonants. So if we had hit Ted... Uh, most of the time, you're you're going to say hit Ted, um, but if someone had said to you, "Did you slap Ted?" No, I hit Ted. Yeah. Um, you're going to emphasize that word preceding the T, and so having both T's helps you to point out that the word, the first word, is more important. And in that case, that might be an instance where you might to really set off that word hit Ted. You could use an adjective. It's it's pretty serious stuff if you're going all the way to an objective. Um, but, uh, um, you know, I, I have worked with people who have insisted that any time you get paired consonants like that, particularly on a classical text, that, that uh, we always hear both of those consonants. And, you know, it's a question of taste. And in, in my book, that's a little bit too much salt for my sauce. Um, I, I heard a, a great... A lot of the time, I, I find. Uh, one of my students... Uh had been taught this and uh, had a term for it, double tapping. 
Uh, do you want mm. me to double tap it, she said. And it sounded so authoritative. I thought, yeah, go ahead and double tap it. Uh, but it is a variable technique. And it's something that, as you very rightly mentioned, we, we vary it for our own internal purposes as communicating human beings. And so mm-hmm. certainly our characters uh, can vary for their communicative needs. Certainly actors in trying to adjust for the acoustic needs of the situation they're acting in should be able to master this technique of either stopping one sound and exploding the other or of exploding them both, doing it with a degree of emphasis or a degree of subtlety and grace, depending on what's required. There are... Great. There's one more thing, one more uh, lenition item that I want to put on here, uh, which was Mm. brought to my attention by the writings of Raymond Hickey, who's an Irish-English or Irish dialect uh, researcher. And uh, he points out that whereas intervocalic lenition of t in American English might be d or a glottal. Uh, oh no, you didn't. Better. Uh, in a final position, it might be an unexploded t or it might be a glottal. In in Ireland, it's fairly common for that lenition to be uh, a sibilant release so that you get mm-hmm. butts. And in fact, uh, Gay Byrne, uh, Irish writer, uh, wrote an article in the Irish Times maybe a year ago about how appalling it was that modern Irish speakers were replacing T with S. And he spelled it out mm. uh, instead of but, it was bus. What's really happening there, and it's certainly happening, I have certainly noticed it in Irish English, is in those weak positions, there's a little softness, a little sound coming out. Buts, that's. I, when I first heard it and sort of took it on as a feature of Irishness, I, I found myself putting it in initial positions as well. So, Tony, but I don't really think that happens as much. I think it really only happens in final positions. Yes, we do get that in parts of uh, British Isles, where we get ten, ten tired yeah. turtles with that very splashy dental pronunciation. But I think what you're talking about is what I've heard called the, the slit yeah. T. Um, and it's also a feature of Australia and Newfoundland. And in Newfoundland, it's really kind of a shibboleth, that it's one of those things, well, you think you can do a Newfie <laughs> accent? Well... Do this sound, and if you can't do it, then you, you can't do it. In Newfoundland, is it and, final uh, positions as well? Sure. Uh, uh, and uh, Kath and Kim, the comedy show out of Australia, they have a, a, a bunch of characters that say, great, great, and they write it G-R-A-Y-S-H. So it's a post-alveolar. Uh, S-H-S-H. Oh, two of them. Um, they they perceive... <laughs> lots with gravy. Um, and there is actually an article in the uh, Journal of the International Phonetic Association um, about this, whether it is S or uh, esh, the sh sound. And uh, the, the study did a little test on a number of speakers comparing uh, this Australian feature. And basically, it, it is closer to sh than it is so to So it's S. a post-alveolar um, articulation of a slit T. Yeah, so basically, that that in the, the place where the T is made, it's not made very strongly. And so we get a, 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 a fricative mm-hmm. space between the top edge of the tongue and the uh, alveolar ridge. I think, for me, sh is much more groove-like. And the slit is a, a, a really helpful term in that the top surface of that meeting place is all the fricative area. And so um, that kind of width to it, rather than a V-like groove, gives it a, a distinctive characteristic. And that's the thing that's uh, got me past the shibboleth with the Nufi accent, that if I can say great and, and really get that um, kind of broad wetness... Yeah. Um, the fricative across that top um, edge of my tongue, then I get the right sound. Um, and I think that uh, the, 
the Kath and Kim website there, I, there are two older characters that are played as part of that show. You can you can go and listen to them. And what they're doing is actually a parody yeah. of this sound. And so they're not actually doing it. They're actually just doing shh. So they're saying grace, right? And uh, the, it's it's funny, but uh, it's it's not a good source for what that sound actually. I'm going to have to start practicing that. Uh, in that instance, when I'm asked to coach a Newfie accent, uh, I'll probably be calling you. Uh, you know, <laughs> there's so many variations, and I've unfortunately thought of yet another one, uh, which mm-hmm. is uh, the uh, the laminal articulation of t- you've described i think quite correctly the apical or the apex of the tongue uh sealing off the door of escape uh out the front of the mouth and it's certainly possible and uh, i have a student from new jersey right now who certainly does this to take the blade of the tongue and if we again take a little step into tongue anatomy here. The very tip is sort of the the rim, the front surface, the edge of the tongue, and then the top surface of the tongue at the very, very front is that blade. If you put that surface up against the alveolar ridge, you get t-t-t-tony. And that may be what you're describing as as an English splashy T, but it's certainly a a part of... uh, New York City, New Jersey, Tony Soprano, ta ta ta, uh, and that's in all positions: initial, medial, or intervocalic, and and final positions. So, are you actually hitting your teeth there? I uh, when I'm doing it, the back of your upper front take, teeth. Take them away. Take them away. Ta ta ta. I really away. think that I'm, with the tip of my tongue, feeling a little bit of the back bumps of my teeth, but I'm otherwise draping my blade of my tongue over the alveolar ridge. I'm probably also lifting the whole body of the tongue up so it makes it a little easier to do this, and I'm pulling my tongue back. So, so it would be kind close. of impossible to get the tip of my tongue up. Uh, right. But I, this is I, another, you could say it's a shibboleth of uh, New York City speech, that people can do a lot of the sounds, but this is a subtle one that's hard to figure out how they're doing it. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, the the similarly to to move a l- even further back, we have that version of ta and uh that happens for those people who have uh, a very short um attachment of the tip of the tongue. And so they can't actually lift the tip of the tongue to the gum ridge, and so they're having to make the ta and da yeah. a little bit further back. And that's a always an interesting thing to pick up. Um, I tend to notice it when I'm listening with headphones mm. rather than looking, uh, that uh, I get a little bit of a distraction. Yeah. But uh, the uh, ten-tied turtles sound made with almost the what I fe- what feels like the middle of my tongue. It's still the the top surface of my tongue, the blade of my tongue. You, would y- say. you bring up. It's a palatal ta or da. Yeah, exactly, and and we we could talk about palatal. Plosives, but let's leave that aside. This is just that further back on your tongue, you're making the closure that we intend for the phoneme t. There's an interesting thing in the way you just said tentai turtles that you're also making that r sound a little bit differently, and so that is another indication that the way we set up our mouths to speak produces all these little variations. You also mentioned mm-hmm. something that I thought was really great that. Uh, when you listen on headphones, you pick these things up. It is, we have so many variations here. And I think one of the reasons that we're noting all these variations is that tiny, tiny articulatory differences make a significant acoustic difference in this particular phoneme. So we can really mm-hmm. hear those differences. Whereas differences between making a p with the outside of your lips or the inside of your lips or bringing in the lip corners a little bit doesn't make much acoustic difference, and so we don't notice that. So there are so many variations because there's a big effect from a small physical change. And I I also think there's perhaps a a greater sensitivity to these subtle differences that are possibly made by the front of the tongue because we have greater agility with the front of our tongue. The back of the tongue can make fairly dramatically different sound 
sound changes by articulating in different places, though people are less aware of those differences. And that seems to me because people are sloppier with the back of the tongue and not as capable of being um, subtle about the movements of the back of the tongue because it's a, it's a more clumsy chunk of the tongue and we have less nerve endings in the back of our tongues. And so uh, it's a question of a, a combination. I think you're things. right. I, th- I think we'd probably find that Arabic speakers are better at it than English speakers, making those distinctions and thinking about those distinctions. But I think you're absolutely Perhaps. right that we can do more and more variation with the tip of the tongue. I, yes. I've got one more. One more T. And, that, and that's a T that's not really there. It's what we call a penthesis. It's a T that creeps in um, Typically, between N and S, a great example is a word like uh, prince, the artist formerly known as, uh, and prints, like two two, uh, uh, artworks that are printed on paper. Do you have any prints of prints? Um, Exactly. For most of us, there'll be a subtle T between the N and S sounds in the, the guy's name, Prince. Um, or the royalty uh, we, we could probably um, do the same thing with the voice version and say, Hans has hands, uh, or hands even has hands. There's a little closure yes, and buildup of pressure hands. that we recognize as the addition of this t-t-plosive. Uh, right. So we have pairs like tense, to be tense, and tents, the places you go camping in, uh, dense, to be thick, or dents, like in the side of your car, uh, sense, to have some sense and sensibility, and sense, hundreds of a dollar. Um, those those uh, are great examples of that T. And, of course, a, a penthesis can happen in other places. We'll get a K sound in words like length or uh, uh, a, a T creeping in in words like month or seventh, that little stop before the fricative sound, or a P in a word like lymph. Or Or you had a great example, which uh, I had thought about before, since it's my name, Thompson, uh, that it's crept into the spelling Mm. as well, that Tom's son Mm -hmm. uh, has become Thompson because of that closure uh, that we want to make some sort of effortful closure at the end of the syllable, and the thing we're moving into is a lip-closed position, so we build up a little pressure there. And... So, so that's one of those sounds that a lot of people don't even know that they have. And uh, it, I think it can be a feature that is inappropriate in some accents, that, um, that they really do say prince. And sometimes they lengthen mm-hmm. the N a little bit longer so that there's less likelihood of a, a T release. We have probably covered all the possibilities. And, and I'm conscious of the fact that we're probably longer on this episode than some others. But I wondered if there was anything that you wanted to say about prescriptions, uh, that is to say, what we mm. want to tell our students to do. We sort of touched on it. That is to say that we want our students to do exactly what's appropriate for the moment. <laughs> but that's kind of a cop-out. It, it is, I, I suppose. I, I, I do have a, you know, when I, for instance, if I'm doing an exercise with students and I'm going something like, Let's just say ta-ta-ta-ta-ta to work on that ta. Uh, I find that many of my students initially will do ta-ta-ta-ta-ta, sort of a splashy mm-hmm. T. Uh, and I, I, I do find that there is a gender difference here, that women are more likely to say ta-ta-ta than men are. Um, and that could be a North American thing or maybe where I live, but I, that has been my experience in the range of places think, that I've I think, by the way, when we come back um, to S in a different episode, we'll talk about gender differences and the sort of cultural load mm-hmm. on certain splashy sounds. Uh, but, yeah, I absolutely mm-hmm. agree that it's, uh, it's more okay for women to have splashy teas. Yes, splashy, splashy, <laughs> yeah. several things, but... Uh, the uh, uh, that T in particular, and uh, that ultimately I like it if students are capable of doing more or less aspiration on T, uh, or sort of preloading that D um, as, as something you know it's a skill that we work on so that when it comes up in a foreign accent, for instance, can you uh, 
Uh, Explain. It's, it's not a go, new thing. Go a little further into preloading the D. I want to make sure that's clear. Yeah, this is something you touched on earlier, the idea of having the voice engage yeah. before the release. So we yeah. get the. Um, and so if you're doing an Eastern European accent, for instance, um, you know, yes in Russian, the, that really we do need a bit of a buildup of, of, of voice before the release. And you'll actually feel that in your throat, which I think reinforces that sensation that we have that um, these, these accents feel further back in the mouth. Um, that's part of the mouth feel of the accent. Um, so I'd like students to be able to do those things. So that's part of my uh, uh, work with them is that they're able to dial Absolutely. it up, dial I, it back. I, I couldn't agree more that when we teach from the point of view of correction, we're, first of all, disallowing and uh, dissing their original language. They're coming to us with a voice, with a language, with something to say. And uh, we have to be, I think, careful about denigrating people based on where they come from. It's so easy when talking about precision in speech, because some of these things we're talking about are, are questions of precision. Inappropriate precision is what robots do. Uh, what dancers do is appropriate precision, we hope. And so dancers of the mouth ought to be equivalently curious about and in love with the possibility of precision, but only as it achieves the gracefulness or expressiveness or wildness that's required of the artistic endeavor in front of them. <laughs> oh, it's poetry, what you just said. It's poetry. Well, good. I'll have to make sure we write it down somewhere. Brilliant. Well, that sounds like a wonderful wrap-up to what's been a really exciting show. Uh, I think that next we move on... Uh, Actually, I'm not sure what we move on to next. Uh, uh, next is a vowel sound. We're going on to the vowel sound in words like happy. Um, so at the end of it, that terrific. E well, like sound. Uh, I look forward to getting together with you again to talk about that. Uh, oh, Well, before we go, we have to perfect. tell people how they can reach us. If they want to email us, they can email us at glossonomia at gmail.com. Uh, so that's G L O. Double S O N O M I A. Say that again. I think there, we might have gotten an extra O in there. Can you say that again? G L O S S O N O. Oh, you were right the first time. Uh, also, I want to say that you've managed to get us up on iTunes, which is fantastic. I, mm -hmm. As an avid podcast listener myself, I, I'm sort of impressed. <laughs> and uh, it's a little alarming. <laughs> uh, but one of the things that is possible through iTunes and other sources is is to write reviews and to put public comments up. So you can share private comments with us. We'd love that. Uh, it would be so exciting to have public comments and ratings and so forth. So if you do enjoy what we're doing, please tell the world. Mm -hmm. So uh, to find it in iTunes, when you go into the iTunes store, just type... Uh, glossonomia into the search field, and we will come up in the podcast. And section. a whole lot of glossolalia will come up in other sections. Ignore that. No, don't ignore that. Actually, go listen to that. That's really interesting. All right, so I think that's all for today. Uh, thank you so much, Eric, and uh, until next time. Thank you.
Thank <laughs> you.